Thank you everybody for coming. Um, my name is James Putzel and I'm Professor of Development Studies in the Department of International Development here. For about um, 10 years, I ran a research center here called the Crisis States Research Center. And I have to say that it's a huge, after, uh, after doing this work and this research over time, and even before that, it's a huge pleasure for me to be able to welcome Mark Goldring to, to talk to us tonight. He's the chief executive of Oxfam, which is one of Britain's leading development uh, non-governmental organizations. It has a long and, 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 and quite an important um, history contributing to British people's efforts to assist um, and contribute to development processes in some of the most difficult parts of the world. Um, Mark himself is no stranger to the LSE. He studied here in the late 1980s, did his master's in social policy. That was the place, he was telling me, the only place where you could really study development in those days, yeah? We have some representation from that department here tonight. There's still a very close relationship between social policy and the Department of International Development at the school. Well, Mark went on and he, he um, uh, studied as well. He read law earlier at Oxford um, and he has um, an honor. He's, uh, he's got the Companion of the British Empire honor in 2008, um, a, a much coveted award in this country. Um, before joining Oxfam in his present, present capacity, he headed MENCAP, which is one of Britain's most important uh, charities working with uh, the, the handicapped. But before that, he had a long experience in development work on the ground. He, he ran the volunteer, volunteer Services Overseas, the VSO, uh, UK Government Volunteer Program in the developing world. He was at the United Nations Development Program. And earlier, he was at DFID, the Department for International Development. A lot of years of experience on the ground in some of the toughest places in the developing world. And of course, before that, he was in Oxfam. So in a way, he's come back home to Oxfam. He was Oxfam's man in Bangladesh, from what I understand. So it's a great honor and a great opportunity for us to have uh, Mark with us tonight. And without further ado, I'll turn the floor over to him. Thanks. Thank you. Good evening. It is great to be back. It's taken 25 years to get from that side of the room to this. I hope it won't take all of you quite as long. Uh, I chose a rather ambitious title for this presentation, and I can't do it justice. There are so many different dimensions to development that many of you know, have worked on, study, that what I'm going to do this evening is just identify a number of them which seem six months into my new job as Chief Executive Oxfam to be some of those where we're not giving greatest attention and where we in Oxfam are determined that we as a community working on international development and tackling poverty should do more. So to start where Oxfam started, which was actually over 70 years ago as the Oxford Committee for Famine Relief, there's an amazing parallel with the present day. 
Oxfam started to try and ship food supplies into Greece during the Second World War. It had to take on the might of the Allies to do it, our own governments. And the reason Oxfam was trying to do it was the sense that civilians were suffering because of the German occupation leading to the Allies blockading Greece. There was not enough food, people were starving. And a group of active citizens from Oxford and across the UK got together to try and do something about that. And that humanitarian mission has been central to Oxfam ever since. You know, most recently with high publicity, Syria and the Philippines. But also, you know, we need to look at those hidden challenges, places like the Central African Republic, where you've got an amazing humanitarian disaster and negligible public involvement or indeed political involvement. But clearly providing humanitarian assistance is an essential part of tackling poverty, but it's not sufficient. And the Oxfam today is a very different organisation. Rather than being one British organisation, it still has a huge British focus, but it's now a confederation of 17 different independent national Oxfams. Originally, in the early days, the Australians, the Canadians, the Americans, but more recently, South Africa, Brazil, Mexico, India, building that sense of being part of a global movement that uses that 70 years of history to respond to humanitarian needs, to try and promote long-term development, and to influence the policies and practice that keep people poor. I'm going to build on some of those issues this evening, but first I want to set it in a context of what have we as a development community achieved over the last 20 years. We've achieved a huge amount. If you look from left to right, you see the decline in the proportion of people living in poverty over the last 20 years. A really strong, steady decline, which in this case is measured in terms of income against the $1.25, so extreme income poverty. But we can recognise is not only about income, is more broad. Now the significance of that is twofold. One element is that we spend a huge amount of time trying to tell our public, not only the Daily Mail, that actually development is making progress, that poverty is being reduced, and we can go a lot further. And if you follow the graph from left to right, you'll see where the light blue uh, arrow comes out at the end. That sense of where we might get to by 2030. You still see, on the best estimate, a steady decline along the blue line, but you also see a range of different options and possibilities. And they depend on a range of things, some of which we can control, some of which we won't be able to. A very obvious one is conflict. But just as important as conflict are two really key drivers. One is the obvious one of economic growth, but the other is that of equity. How is that growth shared across the world? And at the moment we seem better at growing 
than sharing the benefits of that growth to maximise the impact on the poorest people. So if you look at the upper line uh, across to the right, you'll see that tackling poverty slows down. And if you look at the bottom one, you see that by 2030 it has all but disappeared. We think that's possible, it's achievable, but there's a hell of a lot that we've got to do to get it right. Just to bring that to life a little bit, you know, that was a very dry financial uh, extrapolation. But if you look at a country like Bangladesh, you see that there is a depth to that development which is far greater than simply the economic. I don't know if people at the back can see that clearly. What it's showing is two sets of variables. One of them is that uh, in the country of Bangladesh between 1990 and 2011, you've got some amazing progress in tackling human deprivation. Life expectancy increasing by 10 years, infant uh, mortality falling from 97 to 37. Uh, maternal deaths from 800 to 194 per 100,000. That sense that a country has made real progress, and there has been economic growth, but it hasn't been spectacular, and there has been some elements of good governance, but nor has that been spectacular, far from it. You're also comparing across from left to right, Bangladesh, India and Pakistan. And you're seeing that there isn't quite such a direct link between the human development indicators and the economic development as you might expect. Now the positive side of that is that even poorer countries can do something to tackle extreme deprivation. This is a piece of work on which LSE has actually done a lot of analysis and tried to say, well, what's behind it? Some of your colleagues have been exploring the effectiveness of some very targeted interventions, prenatal screening, oral rehydration solution, tackling cholera and diarrhoea, women's education, all things that we can control if we put our minds to it. And you look at some of those Bangladesh figures against those in India, and you see actually pro-poor policies can make a huge difference. Now, some people enjoy graphs, others prefer the numbers. I find the numbers easier on this. If you look at where we are now, 2013, look at where the world's poor are. We're down to 37 million people living in extreme poverty in China. You know, that's down from the hundreds of millions <coughs> and accounts for much of the change in the previous graph over the last 20 years. But that huge rump of poverty in India and, of course, in sub-Saharan Africa. You project ahead seven years. These are all using the same figures, figures from the Brookings Institution that I was quoting earlier. You see that poverty in China has almost disappeared... In India, if we get it right, it reduces by half. If we don't, we're at the upper end of that scenario I was showing in the earlier graph. But the projections are that we make a very modest impact on extreme poverty in Africa. Now, one of the reasons is the issue of fragile states. 
But another one is that many people living in sub-Saharan Africa are so far below the $1.25 at the moment that even with the steady economic growth that's projected, they simply are not going to get enough to live, enough to eat, unless we can do things very differently. And then we jump ahead to 2030. What this really brings out clearly is that absolute fundamental importance to the world of India getting anti-poverty activity right. But also that unless we do something differently, we're going to have large numbers of poor people still living in sub-Saharan Africa. So that's the broader picture that we're trying to tackle. Some of it we can influence and we can shape. And that's the real challenge for Oxfam and indeed for all of us here. In the last of the graphs, we see that steady decline in poverty over the last 20 and towards the next 15 years of people living in stable environments and that minimum impact on the fragile states. So we have a real political challenge of what can we do to actually try and support fragile states so that development activities are more likely to be effective. Now, what do we do about it all? As I said, this is a comprehensive textbook layout of all the different elements that we want to tackle in development. There are three things that we in Oxfam think are fundamentally important, and unless we get better at, we're going to be at the high end of those scenarios, not the low. Climate change and growing resource scarcity. So some of that resource scarcity is to do with climate, and other parts are to do with other man-made and controllable actions. The inequality agenda, where we think at the moment, as a global community, we just got our head in the sand. And the gender inequality, which we know about, we're trying to work on, but with very mixed levels of success. So to look at those one by one. The threat to poor people's lives from a combination of different the elements which can dispossess them of their land and their productivity, their homes, is phenomenal. I recently visited some of Oxfam's work in Zambia and I met a group of villagers who were desperately worried about the expansion of the mine next to them. Now, a successful mining industry is crucial to Zambia's future, but their belief that they could actually negotiate what land, of course traditionally held land, they kept and what was going to be taken over by the mining company for new quarters worried them desperately. They knew that the mine was good for jobs locally, but it wasn't necessarily going to give them a job. And that issue of the imbalance of power driving people off their land is something which we think is really important and I'll come back to again. But in addition, as we talked to them, they were a community that Oxfam had been supporting to improve their agriculture. And we talked through all sorts of elements of what was going right and wrong. And why weren't they taking a bigger gamble? Why weren't they planting more? And it came down to the fact that the elders said, 
20 years ago, we could predict the rains nine years out of 10. This year, these years, we get it wrong nine years out of 10. If the rain doesn't come, what can Oxfam do about it? And that was that fear that the dimensions of climate change were going to affect their lives in ways that were going to leave them poor. This picture you might have seen massively covered in the Warsaw climate talks recently. This is the Filipino delegate who, as he came to Warsaw, was hearing from his brother back in the Philippines who were digging family members out of ruined buildings uh, in his home. He gave a long speech and he burst in tears. Many people in the room burst into tears with him. It was so powerful, so emotional. Now, none of us can directly link the typhoon in the Philippines to climate change. But we can very directly and very reliably link increased damage from natural phenomena to climate change. So it's not that we can prove that there are more incidents, but those incidents are more serious and the poor people, will say, are hitting them harder, coming more regularly. So the intensity and the damage means that people's traditional coping mechanisms, and of course people in the Philippines are hit by disasters the whole time, are simply not strong enough. There are many which are well known, which are seen, which are on the news. The Philippines is a great example. But there are many, many more which just go below the radar. Visiting Haiti in the Dominican Republic, I saw an inland lake where people showed me how many times they'd moved their houses up the hill in the last couple of years because the more intensive rain meant that the lake was rising. Their farmland was being swamped. They were moving further up the hill and up the mountain. So these little episodes going on around the world, hidden but desperately important. We're trying to think in Oxfam, what do we do about it? How do we respond to it? And our traditional approaches of adaptation, of helping farmers choose different crops, uh, simply feel sticking our finger in, a very, in a, a very small finger in a very large hole in the dike. They're not going to be enough. So what can we do to get further up the chain of causation? So I'm spending a lot of time at the moment doing the rounds of pension funds, insurance companies, banks and investment <coughs> houses, as well as the relevant civil servants and government and opposition officials to say... How are you looking at this issue of climate change in actually making your investment decisions? So we're not just looking at the effects, we're actually looking at the underlying causes of increased carbon burning and of global warming. Most of them very openly are saying, we've got a research department that deals with that. And you say, well, how much account do you take of it? And the most recent meeting on Friday in one of, in, in actually the bank, which is the world's biggest energy investor, said, well, we don't have to, because our money will come back within 10 years. That's the length of our longest loan. Everything's going to be fine by then. The people who are borrowing it for the coal-powered fuel power station will be able to pay it back. So at the moment, it's not being factored in to investment decisions. 
And yet you have this sense that so much of our economy is based on the value of our energy companies. Our stock market is 25% composed of companies heavily linked into the energy industry. And if their valuation is real, they have to be able to use all their fuel reserves, all the mineral reserves in the ground. If they don't use them, they're not worth what they say they are. And if they use them, global temperatures will rise probably by three times what's seen as the safe minimum. Now, unless we can tackle that at the end of investment, we're never actually going to be dealing with the underlying causes of climate change. So that balance of where do we influence public opinion, where do we influence government regulation, where do we influence investment patterns, and what's going to make a difference to them is a really complex issue. We in Oxfam don't have the answer to that, but we think it's a desperately important thing to carry on working on. Moving on to the other challenge, which we just think is being underthought through, it's that of inequality. That is a fact. The richest 300 people in the world have the same level of assets as the poorest 3 billion. It doesn't make sense. You can't understand it. But it is well tried, well analysed. And it feels as if it's getting worse. That same trip to Zambia, I hadn't been for six or seven years. When I last went to Zambia, I was told it was a a least developed country. I went this time and I was told it was a middle-income country. I couldn't see the difference. The difference was that the mines are working better and so people are uh, generating wealth. It must make a difference to the people in the immediate vicinity of the mine who get a job. But it's not making a greater difference because if you look at where profits are being declared, Cayman Islands, which we've never seen mining much copper, but seems to somehow generate the profits of many of the extractive industries around the world. So looking at those issues of inequality feel desperately important. This graph shows inequality and uh, tackling poverty in South Africa. The middle bar there is how many people do we take out of poverty uh, over the next seven years if inequality remains the way it is? If we, and that's what, about 200,000. If we could reduce inequality by five points on the Gini coefficient, we'd be taking nearly a million people more, or so nearly a million people out of poverty. If we could reduce inequality by 10 points, so by 10%, um, we could reduce it by one and a half million. But the latest trend, using South Africa's current development model, is that uh, over a million people will get poorer. Completely the opposite direction. So this issue of inequality is absolutely fundamental to tackling poverty. We can all see it in our own countries. We can conceptualise it whether our discussions around the bankers versus welfare claimants, different things in different countries, but it is a phenomenal issue for us. So what have we got to do about it? The role of the state here feels absolutely fundamental because that combination of taxation, provision of high quality 
Public services free at the point of use so poorest people can benefit from them. Labour standards that pay a minimum wage and social safety nets to help those who can't work feel as if they've all got to be a part of tackling inequality. And only the state can do that. It's not something NGOs can do or private business can do. Creating the right environment for private business can make a real contribution. But supporting the state to improve and tighten those range of activities just feels absolutely essential. And I want to give another example from the Zambia trip. I visited a health clinic. A woman had been standing at it for hours. There was no doctor at it. The doctor was going to come. No one was quite sure when. And the nurse said, well, the thing is, if he does come, we're not sure if we'll have the right drugs. And after several hours waiting, I was only there at the end of this, the woman went home, untreated. I have no idea how serious her condition was. In the afternoon, Oxfam was helping run a seminar on social health insurance. And the idea of this was to help the Zambian government think about what kind of approach to financing a health system will help the poorest communities. And our fear was that if Zambia copied a number of other countries, Tanzania, Ghana, you'd actually be embedding a two-tier system where people in regular official work, mostly civil servants and people employed by larger companies, would get good health care because they could pay the health insurance and the standards for the rest of the population would fall. So our role wasn't to give the answer, but was to bring the researchers from the other African countries to talk with the Ministry of Health in Zambia to say, how are you going to design this as a way that fights inequality rather than embeds it? The third area that feels desperately important is gender inequality. Projects now, whether they're run by the Department of International Development, the UN, a national government or an NGO like Oxfam, will never not think about gender. But we're still not making enough progress. And it feels that the big gap is very much at the political level, at the level of power, the level of decision-making, the level of voice. So what do we do to help give people voice? Visiting Oxfam's work in and around Syria, one of the programmes that our staff on the ground are most proud of is not the humanitarian relief, which is important and absolutely essential, but the work that's going on to actually train groups of refugee women as bloggers, to talk in, through social media about their experience, their lives, and then what Oxfam can do is help that link in, make sure decision makers see it and hear it, and the public begin to follow it. So that sense of what can we do to give people voice has got to be crucial to the next generation of gender work. But we know there are also practical things we can do. Those stats that I showed before just showed the impact of increasing literacy for women on women's health, children's health and development in Bangladesh, and equally the lack of it comparatively in Pakistan. So the issue is not that we stop doing the practical work, far from it. And as we sent our humanitarian teams to respond to the emergency in the Philippines, we actually sent the gender advisers 
and the protection workers, along with the water engineers and the cash and food managers, because building that together is so fundamental to the way we deliver meaningful support. Gender-based violence is just one really current dimension of this. In the Philippines, there are real risks to women that traffic will, trafficking and prostitution will increase as a result of the current disaster. We've seen the same thing in places like Yemen and in Sudan. And, of course, we see that absolutely chronic violence in the Congo about which we're really relatively powerless. The sense of the global community trying to work harder on this is real. And Foreign Secretary and Development Secretary within DFID see it as absolutely their personal goals to make some impact on that. The Foreign Secretary today announcing that big conference, global conference next year, to be held here in London. But that's just one example of where we've got to get better. Now, switching across, I want to just look at some of the issues of the enabling environment so that we can make the biggest difference to poor people's lives. And let's recognise that while we want to shape the investment those banks make, those finance houses make, we still want it because it makes the vast difference to the lives of people in the developing world. But there are better ways in which poor people can capture the benefits. And we in Oxfam think the Robin Hood tax is one of those on financial transactions. But business investment finance, the private sector... So many stereotypes around what it is, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. You know, it is a real thing which is going to drive growth and employment. And it ranges from this woman keeping a couple of cows and being able to sell her milk as well as to consume it. So she's got a cash income that's reliable and Oxfam seeking to help link her to dairies so she can get a fair and reliable price right through to the massive multinational investors. And the scale is phenomenal. You'll see that steady growth in, in private investment in sub-Saharan Africa over the last 12 years, from about 7 million up to 35 billion, I beg your pardon, 7 billion up to about 35 billion. Now, of course, it's very skewed. It's going to the safer countries. It's going to the uh, richer countries within that. But it's dwarfing international aid. And whereas international aid is going downwards, you can see steadily how this is moving. So working with it feels really important. It is going to create jobs. It is going to create wealth. So from Oxfam's side, we're thinking, what can we do to help poor people benefit from this? And we're doing it in a range of different ways, working with the extractives in one way, this is an example of working with the food companies. The biggest 10 food companies in the world turn over between 12, 13 billion dollars a year for the smallest, up to nearly 100 billion dollars a year for Coke. And influencing the way they work is really fundamental to creating safe land rights, safe jobs, gender rights, partly because they are big employers and partly because they shape the wider environment in the countries in which they're such a massive force. So what Oxfam's done in this programme, this campaign called Behind the Brands, is to actually do detailed research 
against about 200 indicators. And they are objectively verified. They're not Oxfam going and standing behind the company and saying what's happening there. Um, and we've scored those 10 companies against a range of seven different criteria, ranging from how they get their land through to how they treat their staff, through to women's rights, through to environmental issues, and a range of others. And then we've been running a campaign which has so far engaged about 300,000 people to say what can we do to create a race to the top? Because this isn't about naming and shaming, it's about how do we promote good practice so that gender rights are respected, so that fair wages are paid, so that seasonal workers are treated appropriately. It's been amazingly effective. Companies hate it. But <laughs> investors love it. So our sign of success is twofold. The first is we're already seeing companies take action. And as a really powerful example, last week, Coke came out. This was scored before last week. Coke came out and said they will sign up to the global standards on best practice on free and informed consent for all the land that they acquire to develop the crops, mostly sugar, that they need. But not only that, they will also require all their suppliers to do the same. Now, that is a really big step forward. There's some companies at the bottom who aren't so enthusiastic about engaging. But what we're doing is taking this round the same investment houses to say, how useful is this to you? Because you want to be, they want to be able to predict risk in those companies that they invest in. And because it's objectively verified against published standards, they feel they're making progress. So that's the kind of engagement. It's not, is investment a good thing? It's how do we shape it to benefit poor people? I like this little cartoon because this is a conversation between Oxfam and Unilever. And when you look at it, you think, well, actually, Unilever are smiling rather more than Oxfam is. Does that mean we're not pushing quite hard enough? But on the nature of our engagement is we want to use those charts, but we also want to do behind-the-scenes work to help companies want to do better. And actually, Unilever is an example of a very positive dialogue where, as well as the public uh, chart... There's also a sense of what more could we be doing, what more could you be doing, and how can Oxfam support it? And as one example of that, we've done an audit of one of their country operations, and they were quite horrified by what they found in their own supply chain. But they were also horrified by what they found was the difference between their minimum wage, which was legal, and what it was calculated the minimum living wage was in that country of Vietnam. And of course there's a huge gap. They can't fix it, but they then become an actor who is involved in it. My last point on that enterprise side, I love this little story which is from The Guardian, which describes your counterparts in Manchester University saying we don't want any more of these traditional economics courses. We want something that teaches us about the real world post-2008. Our economics didn't prepare us for the global crash or the environmental disaster or the lack of equity. What are we going to do about it? And can we develop, you know, can we get some half-decent professors to teach us a half-decent de course? <laughs> I want to just end with a reflection on what does this mean for NGOs like Oxfam and for aid and development. 
more generally, the richness over the last decade is people have stopped equating aid and development. Development is a process that is mostly driven within a country with its own government and its own money playing the major part. Aid is something that can help that, both in humanitarian situations and as a catalyst beyond. But that separation and recognition just feels like a healthy dialogue to keep maintaining. It's even more important, as what you can see in that chart, is in the last three years, aid from official sources has fallen by about 6%. Britain, of course, is a great exception, with 0.7 being achieved, but it's not happening and there's not a wider trend beyond. Where there is a trend is lots more non-traditional aid givers. When I visited Yemen, there was real sensitivity within the government of Yemen and the international community about Saudi aid. Well, who were they aiding? How were political purposes being supported by this? Was it meeting international standards? The answer to all of which is we've got to start learning because those sums are increasing. Similarly from China, from Brazil and from other countries. Now, the, the kind of developments we've been exploring rightly set a challenge for what is the role of the NGO, the international NGO, in the future. Our sense is that we've got real challenges that we're trying to respond to of relevance and legitimacy. We can get access to decision makers in the north relatively easily. But what about the decision makers in the south? Why do they want to talk to an Oxfam in Great Britain? Uh, how are we speaking for poor people in those countries and working with them as genuine partners if we're still a northern-based agency? Rethinking that is central to most of the major, more forward-looking international NGOs at the moment. That sense that we've got to keep evolving and we've got to think, what are we doing to make a difference? And I think that for Oxfam, the biggest opportunity here is around that use of influence. That little health programme that I visited in Oxfam in Haiti is absolutely minuscule compared with the size of the health needs of Haiti. The agricultural development programme that we might run in Mozambique is tiny compared with the investments that many of those companies we've just seen are making in agriculture in that country. So how do we use our influence most effectively? And that's the combination of learning from our own programmes on the ground, doing research, sharing knowledge much more effectively, and seeking to get to decision makers. It was really powerful joining Oxfam, my first month in my job, when the G8 came to Britain. That sense that we could actually eyeball George Osborne the night before the meeting started and said, the country's watching you, what are you going to do about it? But the next day, in the first day of the meeting, the, the finance minister of Nigeria stood up and basically dismissed all the things we'd been trying to convince George Osborne of <laughs> because they weren't necessarily to the advantage of the government of Nigeria as opposed to the people of Nigeria. 
So we've got to build those influencing networks by building that relevance and legitimacy in the countries of the South, by developing and working with Oxfam India so it has a really clear voice with the government of India, rather than believing that a few million pounds of disappearing foreign aid are going to have any influence on the government of India at all. So that sense of seeking influence, building learning, sharing it, Harnessing public opinion where that's practical, professional opinion alongside it, feels central to our future. And it's the way I think we can actually achieve that scale and leverage that NGOs have struggled to do for so long. So, in ending, I think there is a real opportunity to make sure that that first graph is realised with very few poor people. It's not going to happen on the current paradigms but there's a hell of a lot that we can do to try and make it happen. And I look forward to working with all of you on that. Well, we have some time for, for open discussion. And as is often the case, I want to abuse my position as chair to, to give the first question, to give Mark the first question, and while you think of yours, you know, I told them he would get a grilling from LSE students. Yes, so you know, Mark, I was I was checking out what's Oxfam's latest document on fragile states because I I was trying to sharpen my my question to dig you a little bit. Um, and so I came across this document, Programming in Fragile and Conflict-Affected Countries. So I said, well, based on our research, I really want to ask him some difficult questions. And I started looking at it, and I saw, well, it's kind of a, a mixed bag of things that I think are rather interesting, more hopeful than I, I thought Oxfam was doing. And then when I got to the end and they said where to learn more, they had... See, James Putzel, why development actors need a better <laughs> definition of state fragility. So I was, I was quite delighted. Good, but good. nevertheless, um, one of the problems that we see in a lot of countries that are struggling to rebuild lost state capacity, whether or not they've been through a war or, 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 or may be in danger of falling into one, uh, one, one of the problems is that there's a multitude of interventions. And the NGO sector, um, sometimes even in a more aggravated way than official development donors, is often operating on a very tight project um, cycle. They have to show results for uh, the way they're spending their money. And they're delivering services or, or, or genuinely reducing poverty, but in ways that create systems that are parallel to the state rather than reinforcing the state's systems. And you said in one of your slides, the state is very important because you can't achieve at a scale that's necessary without the state. So how is Oxfam and how are the NGOs really tackling that problem? Mm. That dilemma of service delivery is a really challenging one and you can look at it from a number of different dimensions if you remember that slide I showed about uh, real progress on development in Bangladesh which was based on some LSE research when you get to the explanation of why did it happen 
One of the major contributing factors is seen as being a very strong NGO sector in Bangladesh. And as many of you know, you know, BRAC runs a parallel education system, the Grameen Bank runs a parallel finance system, as do many other organisations. So the NGOs have come in, but they've come in at scale. Now, will we think that's positive in 10 or 20 years' time, in terms of the dynamics between the NGO and the state, is a different matter. But there are some situations where that service delivery just feels to be crucial. And in a trip that I made, the Zambia trip I was describing, I visited a group of schools that Oxfam had been supporting, and I was horrified. They were a poor quality education, where poor kids' families were actually having to uh, meet the costs of employing the teacher, and where, in theory, primary education was free in the country. So I was saying, why are we doing this? And actually, there was a well-thought-through process that if the community start, at a certain point, the government take it over. And Oxfam's job was to help the community get it to the state where the government was obliged to take it over. So if I'm looking at Oxfam's work, I'm saying, except in humanitarian situations, Oxfam should not be delivering services in any context that does not also involve that issue of what are you doing to change the underlying system. But I couldn't have looked at the parents of those kids and said, we shouldn't be doing anything today because this is the government's job. We're going to advocate for it. Don't you worry. Your children will get a good education by the time they're about 25. So we've got to balance that carefully. And I think NGOs have been far too far on the service delivery end of that spectrum with hopeful statements at the end of project proposals, which is, it's hoped that someone else will carry this on or it will be replicated. What we need to be doing is designing that in so we're not setting up a parallel system as a norm. Thanks. Okay, let's, let's get some questions from all of you. I seem to have misplaced my pen, but why don't I take two or three at a time? Fine. I'll let you. Okay. You might want to actually copy them down. Um, so let me see. Questions from the floor. We have, two, we have two microphones around. Okay, the gentleman right here. Um, is it I'm Dr. Jen from India. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the basic question which I have in mind is there is a food subsidy program which has been very decently passed by the parliament in the country. What is the opinion? What's your opinion about that? Because generally this food subsidy program doesn't teach the right type of people. This is one question. Second, Just one question maybe. Yeah, one more. Uh, okay. Two, three. All right, Krishna. <laughs> Seeing that there's not a lot of other hands. Yeah, regarding the growth in population in the lower strata, well, we are not able to check that growth in the lower strata. That's really disturbing trend which is coming up. So, what is your opinion regarding that? Third is regarding the microfinance, because you didn't start thinking questions. about the microfinance institutions doing a great job in reducing this eradicating poverty. Yeah. Particularly in India and particularly in Bangladesh. Great. Okay, thank yeah. you. These are three. No, 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 that's enough. <laughs> I'm going to give some other people a chance, yeah? Right up there on the top. Does somebody have a yeah, pen? Um, I was very interested in your last point about designing mechanisms for governments to take over those interventions. Yeah. 
Um, my question is, how do you do it? Yeah. And right here in front. Then I'll let you yeah. give a first. Uh, there are always assumptions about the, the impact of the work that's been done by many of the NGOs. How does Oxfam measure its evidence mm -hmm. and impact, and how sure you are about this evidence? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Why don't okay. you try, try? We'll come back for another round. Yeah. Since you only got one and that gentleman got three, I'll start with yours and work, work back. Sorry. Yeah. You know, if you look at traditional NGO projects, in fact, traditional donor-driven projects, you know, usually relatively small with lots of fine hopes, all of which can be realised within the project and dashed by the wider environment. You know, it's very easy to say this project helped women get an extra two cents, uh, an extra two kilos of whatever they're producing, but by the way, the price fell in the meantime and they're still very poor. So as we try and avoid this myriad of small projects, you know, measuring change as part of a national approach and then looking at what the causality is feels a little bit more realistic. It doesn't when you're running your own little projects all over the place. Um, Oxfam builds a monitoring and evaluation and a learning mechanism into every programme that we do, and we employ a lot of staff to support it, and much more than you'd think we might want, but the idea is we can't learn from it unless we do that. So it's not just about accountability, it's about learning. But we also, a couple of years ago, started an approach to public evaluation, which is really much more around transparency and accountability. And every year, through an independent process, we identify about 30 projects or programs across the world, promote an independent evaluation on them, and put everything on our website. So you can see you know, some of them are frankly embarrassing because they didn't work. Now, if we can show why, we'll learn something. But what's also really important is that we're transparent about it because it's public money that's being spent. So you've got the learning dimension and you've got the accountability dimension. Uh, and we try and weave those together. But we put a lot of effort into shaping it. Uh, and into assessing it. Where I think we're much less strong as a wider community is that issue of what's the relationship with national change. Yep. The price of copper goes up and down. It'll make more difference to whether that woman gets health care <laughs> than an Oxfam project might if the government are taxing it right. So it's those big linkages. Working back on that issue of government takeover... Government takeover may be the right thing to do. It's not always what you're looking for. What you're looking for is scale and leverage. So we try and build into the way programs are designed, and if they're spending significant amounts of money the way they're approved through our management chain, what is your route to scale? Now, in the case of a health service, it's going to be the government. But in the case someone was asking me about microcredit, uh, it might be nothing to do with the government. It's much more to do with, is the market going to take over? So to use the example of the woman with her cow, we've got a situation where a dairy says, if you can produce this much milk, we'll come and collect it. So can Oxfam help people in that community pool it, sell it, manage it? And then the market will actually help that dynamic. And our role is more the social organisation 
to make sure that they can relate to the market and they don't get screwed by it. So those are the kinds of approaches. Where it's a public service, then you've got to look at the government policy context. And you've got to be really clear at the beginning, have you got a way of handing this over? If not, your three-year funding proposal is going to need another three-year funding proposal, is going to need another one. And there may be situations in which you do that, but they tend to be the crises in the fragile states rather than part of a longer-term development process. So you need to look at each situation, have the discussion beforehand, understand the rules of the game. And it might be that you need to spend as much on the advocacy as on the project, because the government's not going to say to you beforehand... Uh, will take this over if it's not yet part of their programme and they don't know if it's a good idea. So encouraging people to spend money on the learning and sharing it and the influencing needs to be built into the project design. Lots of NGOs aren't good at that and lots of donors won't pay for it. But that's where you have to use your own money rather than donor-given money. The gentleman, sorry, had a few questions there. I can't answer, you know, food subsidies are such a broad issue. It depends massively on how well they're targeted. And is that a permanent part of the food supply system or is it about a temporary shock? I don't know the Indian design. No. But, you know, what you see is quite often those benefits being captured by the people who are not the ultra poor. So it all comes down to... Yes, it comes down to the design of the programme. Yeah. And, you know, microfinance, yes, but let's not dwell on it overly. You know, microfinance does not often get people out of poverty. It helps keep them alive. You can build on microfinance to the next level. So one of the things Oxfam does, we actually run some investment funds to help some of the people we work with who are in the microfinance bridge that gap because they can't get to the banks. So where do they get that loan that's not $50 but might be 500 or 5000 that actually gets them out of poverty and helps them create jobs? So I'm not poo-pooing in any way the value of microfinance. I think it's well proven, but it does not solve national economic development issues. Yeah, it's a contribution to, yeah. But as I said at the beginning, I could not give a presentation on every element of international development, yeah. Okay, let's get some more questions. If I, yeah. I could just ask you to say your, your name and where you're from. Um, Pablo. <laughs> I know his name. <laughs> one, of my, one of my students. So I won't say my name. No. Uh, I, I, and I'm sorry, I, I also have two questions, but they are related to the same topic, I hope. Uh, my name is Pablo Mota. I'm an international student from Mexico, and I am in, in the International um, Development Department studying a master's. Uh, my questions are related to the influence of, of the NGOs. Uh, and the first one is the comment that you made about the lack of voice that some communities yeah. have. And I have to disagree with you in this, because I don't think it's a lack of voice. I think it's the lack of the interlocutor on the other side. Yeah. I think the voice of these people and communities is being really hard heard already. Uh, so w- how the, the influence of NGOs can help to actually bring um, governments, uh, civil society, NGOs also to, to be the right interlocutor yeah. to hear all these demands that I think they are pretty out there. Um, and the second is about the scorecard, which I think is brilliant. Uh, I like how it, yeah. how, it, how it looks and uh, maybe the effects it can have. Uh, however, I think that 
it's only referring to food yep. in this case. Uh, have you thought about extending that to the financial services? Yep. Because financial inclusion of the poor, at this point, with the globalization levels that we're getting into, it's just as equal, maybe, as, as the food problem. Yeah. So maybe, as you said, it's not a shaming and naming game, but actually some financial institutions could do much better. Yeah. And maybe it's time to actually show up a scorecard in which we can tell them what they should be doing. Yeah. Thank okay. you. Good. Um, let me just take a couple more. So that, yeah. Um, did I see somebody? Right up there, yeah. Yeah, hi. Uh, thank you for your presentation. Uh, I have one question uh, regarding how, how far do you deal with uh, the dependency that it creates among the community on uh, international NGOs, like, for example, Oxfam, because it does at some point of time. And uh, when is it that community is ready to take uh, the stick in their hand to deal yeah. with their own problems. Okay, I'm going to take one more at this round here. Uh, Tony, yeah. Did he teach you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, he did. Sorry. Sorry. I'm going to let him ask you a question. <laughs> we were both much younger then. <laughs> Indeed. Um, yeah, thank, uh, thanks very much for your yeah. very enlightening talk. I have a slightly different question, and that is, in your, in your view, what are the main challenges facing fundraisers um, within Oxfam at the moment? For example, the relationship between public donations and donations from, or contributions from DFID and indeed any other agencies. Um, what are the challenges? What are the yeah. problems? Okay. What are the trends? And also, um, are there any tensions between... Um, the messages which Oxfam feels that it should uh, put over in its sort of public face and the realities of development programs which it feels it, it must yeah. promote in order to promote uh, yeah. development in the genuine sense. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. So I'll let you okay. go for those. Well, I'd better start with my teachers. <laughs> um, fundraising is a real challenge. Um, and you can describe it in a range of different ways. In the first six months of the public appeal for uh, Syria, we raised less money than the first six days of the public appeal for the Philippines. And that just brings alive the uh, issue of what do the public want to support. You know, the Philippines is humanitarian, nobody caused it. Uh, give people a leg up and they'll be fixed in a couple of years' time. Syria, you know, who are the goodies? Where's the solution? What difference am I going to make? And engaging the public, even in humanitarian disasters, therefore varies massively. Behind that, there's that really delicate balance between the money that you raise from the public to do what you want to do with and you're accountable to the public and the money you raise from institutions to do what you jointly agree. I would never trust or support an NGO that could only do the latter. Because it doesn't mean that the programming isn't good. It means you haven't got that flexibility and you're totally dependent on it. So for Oxfam, 
You know, one of our most valuable source, sources of income is the turnover or the profit, the £25 million a year profit that we make on our 700 shops. Because we've earned that, volunteers have, and the public have earned it for us, we can spend that on that really unpopular campaign. You know, no uh, institutional donor will fund that behind the brand's work that I was showing you there. It's too contentious with the companies involved. So we need that flexible source, and indeed from the public who are regular donors too. What we're seeing is institutional donors, the donors who are set up to give money for international development, the diffids of this world, becoming more and more and more demanding and more and more prescriptive. So we had this wonderful I suppose high point, perhaps 10 years or so ago, where it was all about what's the outcome. And you could say, this is the outcome, now give us flexibility to range the activities and the inputs. That feels as if that's all, not quite history, but it's heading that way. So you need the mix between the two. And our biggest challenge is raising money for our advocacy and campaigning work. You know, if I can link that to a question that someone else asked about voice, Pablo asked. You know, one of the really powerful things we did in the lead-up to the G8 and then the G20 in St. Petersburg was take groups of farmers who were being forced off their land to see politicians. It was the interlocutor that you're describing about. They've got the voice, but the politicians aren't going to see them unless somebody helps to make it happen. That kind of thing is very hard to find external funding for, so you need your own source of funds to balance alongside the institutional donors. Because we're British-based, we're not seeing the impact of that, that fall in international aid, anything like as much as... You know, my colleagues in, in Spain, in Ireland, in Australia, they're just desperate because their governments are cutting assistance to international development so massively and they're instrumentalising it so completely, you're either delivering our foreign policy or we're not interested. So that's a trend that you're seeing globally. You're not seeing that so much in, in Britain. Yeah. Just uh, picking up the, the question then about the behind the brands and what next. That's an amazingly intensive piece of work. There's 263 indicators behind those simple numbers. And that's the only way in which you get people to take it, if you like, as an Oxfam piece of work, rather than as a stand on your platform and scream at the world mm. piece of work. And they know that the investment houses and the public can trust it. So when I described earlier that effort to say, what's going to make a difference on climate change? That could be somewhere where we do something similar for investment finances. We can't do it on everything. And so what we've chosen is to focus on food companies because there's that direct connection with poor people's lives through the medium of food. We could just as easily have done it with lenders. But to pick up the link with the microfinance question, you know, most poor people are not able to access commercial finance. So you'd have to be dealing with the microfinance institutions to make that meaningful. And that's much less of a public discourse. You know, 300,000 people won't log on and email the company to say, we love Coke, but we hate the way you buy your land. Will you change it? And that's actually what's, what's happened there. Thanks. We have some, a chance for more questions there. Yeah. 
My name is Jennifer and I uh, come from India. Mm -hmm. I work in uh, villages in uh, very remote areas in northeast India, uh, which you know is conflict ridden. Yeah. And, um, so, uh, no, my question is that, you know, uh, I've been seeing a trend in the past uh, eight to ten years of a lot of INGOs, international NGOs, uh, you know, going and uh, uh, carrying out uh, project work directly, um, you know, implementation of projects directly instead of supporting and partnering with local organizations. Yeah. Uh, and this is done at a much higher cost, you know, uh, than it could have been done otherwise. So I just wanted to know what is this uh, trend and, you yeah. know, yeah. Yeah, okay. Good question. Um, I saw. Who, was it you? Somebody else had. Anyway, here. Yeah. Lady in the back. Woman in the back. Sorry. Hi. Uh, just a quick question. Um, I'm wondering if you could give us some of your thoughts on debt relief in developing countries. Yeah. Thanks. Very good. And here. Hi there, my name's Leon. Uh, would you agree that all poverty is manufactured? Thank you. Mm. Okay. A, a, a post-structuralist question yeah. for you. <laughs> okay, there's three short ones okay. for you. If I may, James, I'll also pick up one that I forgot yes, last time, right. which was on dependency yeah, and, and how you... Yes. Um, and link that to the, this issue of local delivery. There are some situations where you set out to do something because the need is really desperate and really immediate and you get on and do it and you're almost making up the what happens next while you're doing it. That will often be humanitarian situations, conflict situations. And in all other situations, you need to be designing your project or program to say what happens at the end. And having sat both on the side of the supplicant seeking to get the money and in previous jobs on the side of the donor giving it out, we're all too familiar with that idea, well, at the end of the project we will try and hand it over or seek someone else to carry on. And actually it means you haven't got a clue what's going to happen at the end of the project. I think as a community we've got better at not supporting that, but we're far from universal in terms of doing it. I did a film with BBC World recently that filmed me visiting some farmers. And the farmers were actually doing really well. And they were asking for more assistance to grow. And I was having to say, sorry, we can't do this because there are other farmers who haven't yet started on this journey. And it's more important to help that. And the TV camera got the misery in this person's face as if I was completely letting them down whereas what I was trying to do is saying you've been successful <laughs> let's move on and help someone else get to this point but we do need to look well what else could we have done to link them to the market so it's about the linkage and about the exit and to link it to this lady's question here if you deliver a project as an international NGO, you're even more likely to get that wrong than delivering it through a local partner. But delivering it through a local partner does not mean you'll get it right. Your local partner will take the money for three years because otherwise they can't pay their staff. They can't actually benefit their community and they'll keep trying to think what's next. But three years is still a long time if it's make or break. I don't see a trend to more direct delivery by international NGOs. 
I look at the figures of most NGOs, and Oxfam is probably about midway on this. It's not a leader, but nor is it a follower. Um, and we're seeing much, much more being delivered through partners. Um, so I think that's been the general trend. And of course, with governments, you're seeing, as in bilateral, you're seeing more being delivered through a government government a government mechanism over the last couple of decades. So I don't think that trend exists. It doesn't mean you haven't seen it, but I don't think globally it's, it's a real trend. With debt relief, it's a bit like the issue that we're doing a huge amount of work on in the moment, at the moment in uh, Oxfam. We're doing a lot on taxation. What do we do to get taxes paid where the revenue is being generated rather than where it's convenient to declare it? It's an amazingly powerful tool for freeing up money, especially for those public services that I was highlighting. And we've seen that happen with free education and free healthcare in many African countries over the last decade. But it's only as good as the government that's spending the money. And it gives the government every opportunity to put more money into public services. It doesn't always end up with them having done so. But I think on balance it's done a huge amount of good. And then the question which is absolutely definitely beyond my pay grade, which is about that, you know, is poverty manufactured? You know, I think a hell of a lot of poverty is avoidable and is caused by the way society is run and the way the economy is run. Uh, does that mean it's manufactured at one level? Yes. If you didn't have such an unfair system, would we have poor people? Would some do well and would wealth naturally accrue to them and would others do less well? Probably so. But I think, you know, I'd, I'd go as far as saying there's a hell of a lot of poverty which needn't have been there in the first place and which we can fix. But fixing it after you've got it wrong is a hell of a lot tougher than it would have been had we had a more equitable system over you know, hundreds of years, hundreds of political masters, uh, we would have far fewer people than we, poor people than we have now. Great. Have time for some more questions right here in front? Take a few right in the front. Hi, my name's Fear. Hi, Mark. Um, my question is what your thoughts are on some of the recent mergers with larger NGOs. Is yeah. there a benefit to having fewer of these very complex, vast NGOs? And what are the downsides as well? Yeah. Right up on the gentleman here. Hi, uh, Mook Bangalore, Grantham Research Institute, LSE. Can you discuss more about why Oxfam and other NGOs walked out of the climate negotiations yeah. last week and sort of did this do more good than bad? Yeah. Good. And also up on top here is a gentleman in the... Uh, my name is Okan. I enjoyed the presentation. Uh, my question has to do with how you balance... Um, strategic interest. You touched on taxes, which would mean if a company um, uh, produces something in uh, a poor country and declares taxes in a rich country, and Oxfam is based in a rich country, um, what I implied from what you said would be that you would work against the interest of uh, the rich country. Why I ask that question is simply um, to clarify how impersonal uh, 
your criteria is when you pick projects that you work on, on all these different countries. And sometimes if the projects are um, contentious in terms of not supporting um, the strategic, strategic interest of um, the country, perhaps that Oxfam is based in how you address that. Thank you. You go okay. ahead with those, and then we have yeah. another round. Okay. If you look at the mergers issue, you've got two basic reasons. One is you can reduce the costs of operation and the duplication, and I think there's a lot of room for that. Um, the other is that you can actually deliver more. And deep down, I'm not sure whether that will work or not. So if you look at what we tried to do in the lead-up to the G8 and the G20, we got Oxfam, Christian Aid, Action Aid, a number of other organisations working together on this issue of global tax and the whole issue of where tax is earned, where, where revenue is earned and where tax is paid and how do you declare it, the public registry uh, of beneficial ownership. And uh, did we achieve more by having three or four NGOs who were able to pull different dynamics or would we have achieved more being one? Now, we worked really well together and with SAVE and with others on other elements of that campaign. But there was a real beauty of, being a, of Christian Aid, for example, being able to say to the Prime Minister, there's uh, 50,000 of our church-going members are listening as you speak. <laughs> and they mobilised huge numbers of people. Now, they all came to the same rally but actually most of them got mobilised by a smaller number of those agencies. Now, would the public, the church-going public, have supported Christian Aid if they were called you know, Oxfam Aid? I, I don't know the answer. So from the point of view of influence, you know, there may be some balance in having uh, certainly fewer than we've got now, but still a reasonable diversity. You've also got some differences in approach, you know, in, if you call it degree of radicalism. How much do you did respond to the symptoms and how much do you respond to the cause? And different members of the public want to support different issues. But from the point of view of bureaucracy, effectiveness, decision-making and reducing overheads, which is a really significant issue, and saying to the public, we are one, we're going to make a difference on that, I think more mergers could be really worthwhile. Um, the issue of the uh, walkout... You know, I don't know whether we achieved more by walking out, but we couldn't have achieved less by staying. Now, that's some nonsense, isn't it? I'd, we, couldn't have, we wouldn't have achieved more by staying, that's absolutely clear. Did the world take a blind bit of notice? Well, we tried to get them to take notice. And where 70 southern governments and 200 NGOs actually said, this is going nowhere, you should be ashamed of yourselves... Though it may have contributed to the slightly increased momentum in the last day or two. So I'm absolutely certain that Oxfam was right to walk out. And the reason was that we weren't the primary negotiators. So the symbolism of doing that and saying, we're going to try and use public opinion to focus on this, alongside the technicians from the different governments who were staying there, that just felt like a sensible balance to, to us. And I think that's a role we've quite often got to got to play. The issue about country strategy, 
shaping a country strategy is a really delicate <coughs> issue because at one level you should say, well, the government will tell you what to do. I worked in Bangladesh at the time that the dictator, President Urshad, was overthrown and a democratic government was elected. And I got called in by the Home Minister about two weeks after the election, and I thought, great, he's going to thank Oxfam for all this wonderful work we've been doing on land rights or whatever. And he said, well, now we're, in, now we're a free country, why don't you just give us your money and go home? <laughs> and actually, you know, his job as, an in, as now a democratically elected government was to shape the development strategy, along with his colleagues, for that country. So do we work with the government, with the people, who are the legitimate spokesmen and who are we to second guess, is a really delicate issue. But most responsible NGOs set that combination of global strategy and national strategy in a way that's iterative. So if we think land grabs are a big issue across the world, we say, well, where are they a biggest issue? In Mozambique, in Colombia, in a number of other countries, this is a really big issue. How do we respond? So we're trying to weave the global and the national together. The government sometimes like it, and the government sometimes don't like it. So sometimes we can be working with both government and civil society, and sometimes the government will say to us, who the hell are you to be saying in Tanzania that this land development programme is not in people's best interests? So that is quite a, a challenge for us. But we try and choose programmes that we think will make the biggest difference to poor people. And so one of the reasons we work on this tax agenda is that it's not about one country. You know, anywhere that wealth is being generated, someone is transferring that to Luxembourg or the Cayman Islands or Bermuda or somewhere else as a way of minimising taxes. And one of the ways we made, reasons we made such progress at the G8 in getting this, actually the British government to lead the G8 to a major declaration, was that at the same time as many companies were screwing the resource base of the developing world, there were companies being publicised as doing the same to us in the UK. The Amazons and the Starbucks were being publicised as not paying their taxes in Britain and declaring it all in other countries. And it made Britain and the rest of the world feel very joined up in a way that our politicians were actually inclined to listen to, whereas they'd have been far less likely to if we were saying, this is affecting Malawi, uh, but it's not affecting Britain. Very good. OK, we had this woman here. Great. Thank you for a very interesting and informative uh, presentation. I have two questions. Sorry. One is on um, monetizing the cost of the natural environment um, so that companies factor in that in, yeah, and what you think the impact, if you think that will be effective in mitigating climate change. And the other is um, on the ground, um, you've talked about linking local producers to markets or multinationals. Yeah. Um, for example, with a hub-and-spoke model with farmers linking to multinationals or whatever. But are there some multinationals that Oxfam won't uh, go near, like the extractive industries, mm. the mining industries? Um, going back to that village in Zambia, I was thinking um, maybe there's a market in those miners. You know, those miners might be hungry for the local smallholders in yeah. uh, Zambia. I mean, mm. do you facilitate those sorts of linkages too, or yeah. do you tend not to go near those yeah. industries? Thank you. Yeah. Right here, this gentleman here in front has been very patient. <laughs> um, hello, I'm Eamon, Development Planning Unit at UCL. 
Um, my question also follows up on the previous one. I mean, the question of NGO business partnerships. Um, um, it seems to be a delicate balance between a non-profit organization and for sure for-profit for organization. So what is the um, Oxfam's strategy for making this partnership meaningful for the poor and also you know, taking into consideration the risks that might involve? Yeah. Okay. okay. Go ahead. Uh, let me take the two market-related questions together first then. Um, what we need to recognize is that the vast majority of businesses and enterprises in the developing world are not run by multinationals. Multinationals are the people we can reach, and if we can reach them, we can talk about global change. But the majority of businesses in the developing world are small or medium-sized enterprises. So the people we are naturally linking producers to, whether it's to a dairy to sell their milk, or to uh, a local soya factory to sell its, its crops, or helping to facilitate vegetable sellers to sell in the local market, they will usually be local, small to medium-sized enterprises. But we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't block or, or not seek to support a relationship because it was with a multinational. You know, there's this very strange phenomena that we all have in the development sector that when you're a small producer, we can give you microcredit and we love you and you grow and we write in our brochures about the success story and you employ two or three people, you may or may not employ your family members and you may or may not actually give them any decent working conditions, but you're automatically seen as a good employer. As you grow a bit, you're a medium-sized employer and you're the dynamic local engine of development. And as you get bigger, you're a real nasty old sod. <laughs> and we, we change our, our lens according to size. What we're trying to do is look at it according to ethics and appropriateness and recognize that in some ways it's much easier to hold multinational enterprises to account than it is to local local companies. So there's a real difference between who would we link people to where we'd look at the reality of the local market. We would also look at ethical elements, but what we did to use the example of um, some soya farmers I visited on one of my trips, we took them to see three or four local factories and they decided who they were going to work with. And it was how much could they trust the people, what deal were they offering them, but it was a lot was about reliability and trust. And, of course, they took the local standings, not us. Um, that's very different from who would Oxfam take money from. So we are regularly offered money, and we desperately need it, from large companies where we say either we can't take it for that project or program, or we can't take it at all. So we have our own ethical criteria that we would seek to apply. The fact that we might want to challenge someone does not mean we would never take money from them. It might mean they wouldn't want to give us money, but that's their problem. And we would look at will it compromise us in the eyes of people who might support us or who are on the receiving end of our work. So that's what we'll look at in our own, in our own relationships. And it's a different lens from who would we link a small producers to. Monetizing the cost of the changes in natural environment, it's not an area that I personally know much about. But one of the people that I went to speak to as we're thinking, you know, there are people much more skilled than me in Oxfam exploring this. 
but I went to see with them, um, you know, the journalist that many of you will know, George Monbiot, and he described what he saw as the cost of producing carbon currently being taxed, I'm, I'm making up the figure, but I think it's about £4 per unit, and the real <coughs> cost in terms of the impact of mitigating that in due course and adapting against it being at least £35 per unit. And you've got that huge, huge gap. And at the moment, it, we've gone backwards since Copenhagen. It feels a bit like a geek's conversation now, whereas we've got to generate it into a mainstream conversation about all of our own future. So I don't understand enough about the economics except to know that it, we're not paying the right price at the moment and we're not thinking about the long-term implications. And it comes through to me so vividly in that image of the carbon bubble which is that either these assets are stranded, in which case the companies aren't worth what they're being invested in at the moment, or we're going to warm by a hell of a lot more. And at the moment, the economics don't match. Now, if that's not, to go back to the earlier question, you know, an approach to manufacturing poverty, I don't know what is. Very good. I can take just a, a three final brief questions and with a brief answers, and, I, and I'll... And I'll go up top. Yeah, here, right in front. Yes. Here comes a mic for you. Hello. Um, I'm from the Institute of Education, studying uh -huh. international development and education, along with some other people here. Um, how much of Oxfam's budget goes towards education, and what is your personal opinion about the importance of education development? Yeah. Very good. Right up on top, the woman in the red vest. Hi, uh, Diane. Um, I was wondering, you touched upon the role of the financial sector, mm. and you did talk about the questions you were asking them, but what's your view on kind of the social financial products that are coming up more and more these days, and what we call social bonds? Putting aside the microfinance industry, of course. Yeah. Thank you. And finally, oh, here, just down here in front, sorry. I'm making you run around a lot, sorry. <laughs> Hello, um, I'm Kwaku, student. Um, I want to ask um, basically, I believe that the main reason why these nations are in the situations they're in is because of um, economical system and political systems. And I want to know personally what you believe is the main reason. Is it corruption or climate change? Just a simple question. <laughs> <laughs> if it was, none of these people would be employed. <laughs> okay. okay. Should I take those, James? Thanks. Yeah. On education, um, Education is just a fundamental human right. And when we guarantee that right and we realise it to a, re a reasonable standard, as in a quality education, because when you've had massive expansion, as you know, in many countries where free education came in, the standard just fell because there were no more teachers and no more, no more money overnight. But where we get it right, and many of those countries have gradually done so, you know, it makes... You know, possibly a bigger difference than anything else that we can do. And if you look at that Bangladesh chart and you look at women's education, you can double it again. Uh, 
Oxfam doesn't spend a large amount of its money on formal education. And the reason is we're absolutely convinced that that is the state's duty. So we're far more inclined to spend money on influencing education systems than on delivering education services. But there are some people for whom that doesn't work, and you need to look at the non-formal or alternative approaches, and that's where Oxfam does get involved in some ways. The other ways in which we get involved is where you have these community school systems and a really clear route to how do you get them taken over and can Oxfam help accelerate that so that it happens faster. I don't know what proportion of our spend it is, but it's actually quite a low proportion for the reasons that I've just, just described. I would say if you went back 20 years, you'd have seen many more NGOs spending more directly on education, but with all that risk of setting up parallel systems that we were talking about earlier. So I'm not saying you should never do it, but I think our primary role is to support and require the state to run high-quality education services. Um, what Oxfam also quite, quite often does is support schools' programmes with actually just things like latrines and water. Not having safe private latrines for girls is a really massive disincentive to girls staying in school. If we can make those little things work, we can actually help the system work better. The question about social bonds. You know, there's a thousand and one different ways of looking at elements of social finance. And they can be really macro. If you go back or about 10 years, you had the then Development Secretary, Claire Short, and the then Chancellor, Gordon Brown, coming up with a system which was, I never quite understood the economics, but borrowing on future year's aid budgets to spend now, <coughs> invest in actually accelerating the process of development. And then at the micro level, you've got little schemes that Oxfam has, for example, where we have a few million pounds which have been lent to us and on which we pay interest. And we lend to small businesses to bridge the gap between the microfinance and being able to access the banks, you know, that, that missing middle. Development finance can't rely on aid budgets. And it needs the creativity that is stimulated by other forms of activity than just public sector spending. So different forms of social bond, social enterprise, investment, creative use of the market, all feel like tools that need to be built on and, and explored. And I think there's much more uh, to do there. <clears throat> and the last question, you know, what's the main cause of poverty? It needs someone wiser than me to say that. I don't think it's only history. I don't think it's only natural resources. I don't think it's only bad governance or conflict. But I think all of those play a massive part in either causing it or aggravating it. You have got resource differences, but they're nothing like as extreme as the inequality that we've been seeing coming out of it here. So, you know, the day I know the exact cause... Every penny of Oxfam's money will go into that. <laughs> uh, and in the meantime, we take this broad-based approach, which is that there are multiple causes, and the people who are really suffering and who have least opportunity are the ones where those causes, such as conflict, bad governance, unequal society, history, lack of educational opportunities, and all the other coincide. And our job is to break down those barriers and make a real difference there. 
Mark, I really want to thank you. I, I, I want to say that, you know, the LSE must have taught you really well. Social <laughs> policy is a good place to study. Um, but I think you really learned a lot in, yeah. in, 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 in the kind of um, education Tra place of real life. in Brazil. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so uh, we hope to hear from you again. Come yeah. back to the LSE often. Thank you very much. Good, thank you. Yeah.